Before we begin, I'd like to proudly mention our sponsor, Injitsu.com, providing remote at-home training from some of the world's top MMA fighters. These classes are not pre-recorded. These trainers come to you live and coach you for the duration of the class. I've personally taken a few of these classes, and I've never felt so inspired and accomplished in a workout session. They'll leave you both on the floor in exhaustion, but wanting more. There are still slots available for online classes, so head over to injitsu.com slash richardlistens to get your first class free. That's I-N-J-I-T-S-U dot com slash richardlistens. I'll see you there. I'm a big fan of MMA sports. It's rough and elegant at the same time. I think my number one fear of stepping into a ring like that would be protecting my teeth. Luckily, the guys over at Impact Dental Designs have created an amazing mouth guard that is state of the art. These mouth guards are currently being used by some of the best MMA fighters, but even better, they can be tailored to any sport. Football, hockey, boxing, soccer, the list is endless. Head over to impactdentaldesigns.com slash richardlistens to get 20% off your order and a free customized design for your mouth guard. Good evening, everyone. Thank you for joining me. This is Richard Listens, and this is the Richard Listens Show. I'm clinical psychologist, Dr. Richard Olberger. I'm grateful for all the wonderful contributions and guests we've been having lately. Thank you again to all my subscribers, for all of you who've been signing up for email lists, signing up on our Patreon.com page to support the show, Patreon.com slash Richard Listens, Instagram at Richard Listens. Please tweet at me. Instagram, Facebook, sign up, subscribe, and listen. Please take the time, send this to two friends that you think might like the show. And this is a special edition of the Richard Listens podcast in my hat as co-chair for Division One for the California Psychological Association. We continue to bring you special psychologists, amazing individuals and minds who are out there through this quarantine and beyond doing work and taking leadership in our field and in the organization. Today, I'm here with the chair for the California Psychological Association, David Lynn, who has engineered this project, and he's going to share a little bit about our topic today and our mission in bringing these podcasts to you so you can connect and learn a little bit more. Hi, Dave. Hi, Richard. Thanks for having us today. It's awesome to be here with you again, and I'm really excited to introduce today's presenter to you. I just wanted to say, as chair of Division One. I wanted to encourage you to continue to come back because we're going to have more podcasts along the way, interesting topics, and the future app is still in development, and we will be getting that out before the end of the year. So wanted to just share the, all of that with you. But today, I really wanted to say uh, a huge thanks for Dr. Michael Dickerson, who's coming on board to share with us about men's health. And this is an area 
area that I know that I face many challenges coming into this field. Lots of stigma, but I think what Dr. Dickerson's going to bring to the table is going to be awesome to hear. And so I'm going to hand it back over to you, Richard. Thank you, David. Thank you for joining us. I greatly appreciate your work and your leadership through the quarantine and beyond. Thank you. Welcome, Dr. Dickerson. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me on here. I'm really excited. How is everything up in Sacramento smoke-wise? I know we've been through a fiery time here in California. Northern California for you right now. I mean, one hour, it looks like the AQI is in the green. You go outside, then eventually you realize you've been outside too long. You look at the sun, you're like, why is it red? Oh, wait, there's ash. Okay, time to go inside. So, yeah. yeah. Scary times, uh, sure. And we're thankful here in Southern California finally get a clear, clear few days back. Make hopefully help people appreciate the environment, our lovely state, a little bit. Absolutely. Little bit Mike, tell us a little bit about your life as a you know an early career psychologist. Uh, now you know as a working at Sacramento State and in private practice. How did you arrive? Sure. I'll try not to bore you all too long with too much history. But going back, I mean, I was always kind of interested in psychology. Um, there's this kind of ongoing joke with my family that I was doomed from the start. Uh, my my dad's a psychologist. My mom's a social worker. And so with that, I, I always felt really interested in psychology. But yet I still had a bit of a struggle when I entered college. And I really had this strong desire to remain autonomous. And so I remember thinking, oh, I wish my parents weren't in this field because I really like psychology. But part of me, I didn't want to look like I was just following my parents' footsteps. And so, you know, I went into undergrad undeclared. But then eventually after taking just one GE psych class. I said, you know, who am I kidding? This is what I'm meant to do. Was your mini rebellion? Yeah. Yeah. And I realized like, who am I rebelling against? Just myself. So it's really, you know, nature versus nature and nurture where, you know, it was around me my whole life, you know, having parents in the mental health field. And there might also be some just like this innate desire in mental health and psychology. So I got my degree in psychology. And with that, I mean, what do you do with a degree in psychology? You go to grad school. And so I took a few years off to try and get my feet wet within the field to see if it was something I was interested at. I worked at a level 14 group home in Davis, California for two years. And then I decided, okay, now it's time to pursue a doctorate degree. So I attended the Wright Institute in Berkeley. During my time there, I predominantly worked in community mental health through my practicum placement internship, working with those who are really underserved. So then eventually uh, kind of transitioned during my postdoc to college counseling. And I'd say that's where I am now. That's terrific. Yeah. And for listeners who may not know, level 14 is pretty difficult. A lot of erratic behaviors, right? And trying to prevent self-harm or harm to others. A lot Funny of stories. It's actually where I met my wife eight years later after working there. Did she help you regulate? Is that what you're trying to say? Well, you, that's the one beautiful thing. First of all, I mean, we're, you know, really as males in this field, there aren't many who pursue this field. So it's one thing that we do get to realize by serving in California Psychological Association. And the more trainings I go to, realizing there aren't that many men that go on. And like you were saying, in my family tree, there's a ton of 
teachers and social workers, but not very many from the male side. So for me, it was always, you know, TV, Alan Seaver, I think it was uh, Family Ties, dads who were docs, which will tie us in a little bit more to our conversation today on men's health and masculinity. But, you know, men who played this role were in a family role, but also an empathetic role. And there was a certain degree of resonance for me that I aspired to, as well as, you know, my dad being very open about how therapy had had influenced and helped him in who he was and making some pretty positive changes in his life. So there was a testimonial to that at my dinner table. So Michael, tell us how you began to focus on, you know, men's health and how did it become, you know, something you were interested in? Sure. Yeah, even in an early age, it was an interest of mine. I mean, I think when, like I said before, my father's a psychologist. He's always been pretty interested in men's work, even, you know, back when it was pretty kind of cutting edge. And so probably like in the 80s, He used to attend what was a psychological men's conference. And I think back then, you know, it was the conference in a hotel. And then it kind of had this transition where it changed more into like experiential men's work. And I think one year the theme was, you know, embracing like the younger youth. And so during my sophomore year of high school, he went out on a whim. He's like, well, I'm going to invite my son to this. You know, he probably won't want to come. But I figured like, well, what do I have to just a weekend? So I did attend. And, you know, I can say like that probably led me into following the path of psychology. And even after that, I decided during grad school, I I attended the conference for many years after that. And then during grad school, I decided to be on the planning committee and really seeing just this different and change when men are in this kind of safe and protective environment, when they're allowed to express themselves, allowed to show their emotions, allowed to grieve, you name it, just allowed to show that emotion without society saying, hey, you're not allowed to do that. You're only allowed to show anger. Men being open and vulnerable, and maybe that's how a lot of men naturally want to be, but they're told they can't be, not directly, but indirectly by society. And you can really see the healing process through there. So with my work, you know, I do work with a lot of men. I try to encourage vulnerability. I think one thing that's been really important is starting men's groups. So even at where I work now at Sacramento State, oh, starting a men's group since I've been there, it's really eye-opening. You can see a lot of the men who attend, they benefit tremendously from this. And, you know, it's almost like they've craved it and they wanted something like this, but who's going to start it as far as like the open dialogue, the vulnerability. And so to have it in a safe container where they can practice this um, and then eventually hopefully model this out in real world. You said a lot of key words, which hopefully we can delve into more from vulnerability to a safe container, which is something I use a lot in my therapy practice. You know, this idea of being in a place where there no harm can come to you and where you do not need to do anything thing, any other role. You don't need to be a provider. You don't need to take care of somebody else's emotions, which you are allowed to be in safety and in expression of your pain, your needs, and allowed to express and receive support, which is something that, you know, a lot of men struggle with, especially depending on your upbringing or attachment style and things of that nature. I can speak from personal experience, even having a group, a middle school, they call them health 
I didn't want to call them probably mental health group, but a health group in middle school. They called it that. No one would attend. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It broke down the barriers between bullies and people who are, you know, the popular and not popular. It, it, it really created some form of a healing process, which is funny because I used to love going to middle school for this meeting in the basement, the cold, dark mm-hmm. basement. But I'll never forget that, that the teacher took his time to do that and carve that out. You could feel something different happen in some shift in the relationship, something beyond the normal social grouping and things Mm -hmm. that that may not be so healthy. So this is amazing. This is happening on college campuses when the brains and development is really at an all-time high and pressures are at an all-time high. Michael, since this is your area of expertise, can you tell us a little bit about traditional masculinity, you know, commonly referred in the media as toxic masculinity and, you know, some examples of that? Sure. Probably about two years ago, there there's the buzzword going around toxic masculinity. And really what that is, is just this more uh, traditional view of masculinity. So it's not to say like toxic masculinity is masculinity. What toxic masculinity really is, it's more of a more limited and repressed and narrow version of what manhood is. And so oftentimes you might see it defined as aggression, status, violence. Uh, There's a very strong notion that emotions are weak and they're more typical feminine traits and too much of this can go too far and have really negative impact on men to just narrow in this view of like this is what masculinity is you have to stay within this realm in this box yeah it did become trendy but i think it also right it started to open the eyes of how is it that we can become aware that it's toxic and yet it keeps becoming perpetrated you know in society i mean is can masculinity be positive and what did you discover i know your, your research tapped into this area yeah absolutely i mean we really can't say that masculinity is a negative trait for men or women to possess because there's a lot of positive traits with masculinity such as strength, courage, independence, leadership, assertiveness. But again, you know, too much of this can go too far. So everything in moderation. And so with my dissertation research, what we looked at was I really tried to find a way of like, well, how can we like quantifiably measure like emotional expressions or emotional awareness. So I looked at some of the old research of emotional intelligence. So, you know, we'll go into detail what that is, but we looked at the comparison, the relationship between emotional intelligence, depression, anxiety, masculinity, and overall life satisfaction. So, and just like how those all relate. And it was specifically in men over 18. And we were able to survey, I think over 300 men from various demographics, not just in California, throughout the United States. And I think the ages varied from 18 to 81. Demographics varied significantly. What did you learn about tension, clarity, and repair of emotion? How in research emotional intelligence is defined, and I'm going to quote this, it's the ability to perceive emotions, to access and generate emotions so as to assist thought, to understand emotions and emotional knowledge, and also to reflectively regulate emotions as to promote emotional and intellectual growth. So positive qualities there. 
and this is from Sullivan and Mayer. Really, if you wanted to break down emotional intelligence, it's broken down into three categories. Attention, so to simplify it, is, well, how much attention do we pay to our emotions? So obviously, it's a fine line where you don't want to pay too much attention and become obsessive around your emotions, but you don't want to pay no attention at all because that can be detrimental. The next one is clarity, the ability to understand emotions and also to discriminate them. So really understand like, well, what is it that I'm feeling? And like, what is, is this hard for me to deal with this? Is, you know, what is the emotion I'm feeling? And then the next one is repair. And it's the ability to regulate emotion, basically repairing emotions when they come up. Yeah. So that's amazing that you were able to break those down into specific criteria. And I know from clients I see in my practice, there's difficulty with the clarity of what your emotion is or what may be that core deep-seated emotion, which we've learned to kind of mask with some other anger or, or things of that nature. It's hard to repair it, right? We may say, you know, I have an anger problem, but really at the root, there could be some, you know, vulnerability or hurt, things of that nature that need to be processed more fully. So in terms of emotional expression and awareness, where do boys and men get this, you know, where do they acquire this learning? You know, is it nature versus nurture? Is it taught or is it just innate? in the gender? Well, I think that's a good question. It's probably all of the above, but mainly taught. And the question I have is like, why is this taught? Because, you know, research shows it's it's really unhealthy and be detrimental, boys and men, and to those around them. So oftentimes, boys and men are taught that, well, it's, it's not masculine to have mental health concerns. It's not masculine to seek help, or it's not masculine to talk about your emotion. But the question I have is like, well, where's this coming from? Who's to say this isn't masculine? That was one of my questions for my dissertation research, because I think there's this preconceived notion that for men, these aren't masculine things, but is there any data to back that up? And so when we looked at emotional intelligence and its relationship to masculinity, I mean, one might guess that like, well, if you're scoring higher than emotional intelligence, then you're probably also going to be scoring lower in masculinity when it was actually the contrast to that. Those who scored higher in emotional intelligence were actually scoring higher also in masculinity and those who scored lower in emotional intelligence were actually scoring lower in masculinity. So this fear that I don't want to be aware of my emotions, I don't want to be in touch with my emotions, I don't want to be talking about my emotion because that's not masculine when really it's like that's actually incorrect. It seems like everyone these days is trying new workout systems. Some people go to the gym, others may run, but I've recently discovered a great in-home method that is absolutely amazing. I'm taking in-jitsu classes online where I'm being trained and pushed in real time by top MMA fighters straight from the octagon. Injitsu.com provides real-time classes so you can get a top-notch workout from the comfort of your own home. These classes are absolutely going to sell out. So head over to injitsu.com slash richardlistens to get your first class for free. That's I-N-J-I-T-S-U dot com slash richardlistens. Protecting your child's teeth is important in any sport. That's why Impact Dental Designs has put so much thought into their state-of-the-art mouth guards, 
protecting athletes in youth sports all the way up to advanced MMA fighters and champions. And the best part is you can customize your own design for your own creative and fun mouth guard. So head over to impactdentaldesigns.com slash Richard Listens. And if you purchase now, you get a free customized design and 20% off your order. So that's fascinating. So where, so that becomes right. What happens to men when they don't express, when they don't show what they're feeling? How does that invalidate their masculinity? Well, unfortunately, this puts men in this serious bind because they might have this belief: if if I acknowledge my mental health concern, this isn't masculine. If I seek help, this is also not masculine. So this is a bind that men are left in. Unfortunately, they're left to deal with their distress alone or try to deny that they have these issues. And so where are they seeking help? And so what are they doing to cope? Well, I mean, men are often coping with the one acceptable emotion that's okay for men that society says, and that's anger. When really it's like, as men, we're complex. Like we have a lot more emotional expressions than anger. And if they're not using, you know, support from friends, peers, loved ones, or a therapist, a clinician, how are they coping? Well, oftentimes we see men very often coping with self-medicating with drugs and alcohol, which we know that can have detrimental effects on them and those around them too. That's right. So the masking behaviors for numbing emotions become right societal expression, right? Mm-hmm. So yeah. drinking, right? I wonder what the statistics are in terms of opioid addiction, pain, you know. It's definitely mask- higher in men and that's right. Why is that? Right. Because it's not the emotional aspects of pain are not often talked about or, or dealt with. We, like we started talking about, it's becoming a lot more of a prevalent focus in this quarantine that we've been through nationwide here has been grief, right? What do you do with grief? What do you do with loss? What do you do with sudden loss? These are not things that we are trained to deal with. Mm -hmm. And so when we're not trained to deal with something, we go to our default processes. So, but how much of that is, you know, survival-based? How much of that is right? The provider role has been grilled in. Even at a time You can't show emotions because you need to be there to help other people. But who's to say that like, if you're not in, if you're in a place where you're not able to express your emotions, you're probably not going to be in a healthy place to support others. Not to mention modeling that it's okay to grieve too. If people are looking for you to support, I mean, actions are going to speak much louder than words too. Yeah. And I'm lucky, you know, for me, I can draw upon uh, you know, spiritual practice communities where I do see there are men's groups out there where men are attempting to model mentorship, care, warmth, displays of those emotions openly. What cultures do this well or, or where is this being modeled? Where do the cultures that maybe struggle with it more, where did they learn to reinforce these kind of behaviors? Yeah, and you, you never want to say like, oh, well, if you're part of this culture or this culture or this culture, like, you're you better. Know, you're, it's yeah, it's going to be challenging for you. But obviously, you know, there there's going to be different cultures where it might not be modeled as much from older generations or taught. And so some cultures might find this more difficult. But at the same time, we can't assume that if you're from a certain culture that, you know, it's, it's going to be more difficult to model like healthy masculine traits. But there are unique aspects 
maybe to each cultural group, depending on your upbringing. Mm-hmm. For some, you know, clients, I know that, that what's happened with since George Floyd in California has brought a lot of biracial clients to my office who mm-hmm. struggle with the different ways in which their different cultures modeled emotional expression or, or were dealing with similar issues at the time and were unable to express their pain. So yeah. there's a collective trauma that gets passed on as well. This kind of leads us into the discussion on, you know, vulnerability. And I know a lot of has come out about, you know, white privilege as well. And there's a, a book that, you know, is out on white fragility. And it's talked a lot about, you know, even people who did have, you know, more opportunities to express and be vulnerable, that maybe there's a lot of uncomfortability with acknowledging their mm-hmm. own or their own racism, for instance, their own relationship to other cultural groups. In talking about vulnerability, what is being brave and having courage? Sure. Yeah. I mean, there's this idea that like, well, what is brave? What is having courage? And I think there's in society, there's kind of always been this false notion. And I don't know how much media, you know, contributes to this, but there's belief that it's the absence of fear. Well, that's just not realistic because we're humans. We're going to have fear. And it's just, you know, if we didn't have fear, we'd be in a lot of danger. And so humans, we have fear. And so what is being brave? What is being courageous? Well, in fact, a lot of research shows that it's being vulnerable. So if you look at, so the work with uh, Brene Brown, you know, she's looked at all these different factors and what what factors relate the most to courage. And what's been discovered is it's vulnerability. So if you think about it, how easy is it to just avoid talking about your emotions? I mean, that's easy. You just kind of close off. It's going to cost you a lot. It's going to hurt emotionally. But you're dealing with it inside. And not to say like that's not going to have a cost, but it's easy to do where is what's going to be really difficult to do and take a lot of bravery, take a lot of courage is actually opening up and acknowledging the discomfort that we have. Vulnerability is not easy. Therefore, it's going to be more courageous and more brave. How do you model that as a leader of men's groups, right? I mean, clearly men, it's finally got them to attend or to participate in a men's group, which is really powerful. But how do you show someone something that they unconsciously avoid? Sure. So I think as a clinician, it's really imperative that we model healthy male traits. So for some therapists and clinicians, this might be uncomfortable, but it might take self-disclosure. So get modeling from feminist theory and discussing hardships as men that we've faced or taught modeling vulnerability as well. And with this, it's not to say like, hey, you're going to be seen as the expert and you got all this men's health, men's emotional health down and to a T and perfect, but showing that you're not perfect and it's still challenging. And, you know, society might say, or, you know, I got to act this way or like, I'm not supposed to open up and talking about challenges we've faced as well to our clients. And this is where men's group can be exceptional for this as a facilitator to talk with other men. You know, you can self-disclose to what you feel comfortable with, but to model this and to not model like, hey, I'm perfect. Look at me, but to model the difficulties you've faced, you know, following what it 
means to be a man and self-disclosing and difficulties around this. Ironic. And I know for some fans of psychology that that love Carl Jung and the different archetypes that we all have inside of us, some masculine, some feminine, depending on your own perspective. But the fact that you said that, right, that to become more masculine might be about learning to adopt aspects of femininity. So it's, it might be threatening for a lot of, you know, men out there that are, really just focus on becoming stronger, tougher, and and hiding emotions. But it's really beautiful, the universality of it, and that making these stances might make us more masculine. Yeah, Yeah, it's important to look at, like, the BEM sex role inventory. I mean, those are all positive traits of masculinity and femininity. And, you know, it's not to say, like, well, men should only possess this, and that's what's going to be beneficial. If you possess feminine traits, that's going to be detrimental on you when in reality it's like well we can look at the positive to having both um, regardless of how you identify that's absolutely true so dr dickerson you know and we're so grateful for you making time out of your busy schedule to be here with us you know in summary today maybe for our audience and for those who are interested in exploring men's health more and learning about your practice in general about the field what are you know one or two key takeaways for listeners to remember yeah i think just like knowing what masculinity is and you know not having a narrow view on it and so you know the buzzword that was going around like probably two years ago was toxic masculinity and to know that that's not really what masculinity only entails that's just more like this narrow really rigid version of what it is and their masculinity can be very positive and you know if we're looking at other traits of it too like strength courage independence leadership and like i said before it's really important as a clinician that we can model this and also not to show that like you're an expert on this in our own lives and i think one of the biggest things is as a society it's really imperative that we start this at a young age showing boys what it means to be an emotionally healthy male. So redefining societal gender role expectations of males, encouraging positive masculinity, and again, broadening this view of what is masculine and not having a narrow, more rigid view of masculinity. And also not viewing masculine and feminine traits as this dichotomy and really specific for a given sex and understanding um, how both can be healthy to any individual. Yeah, it's amazing stuff. And I hope we can apply it, you know, obviously to helping a lot of our athletes and military and physical health providers uh, who are out there on the front lines experiencing, you know, high degrees of burnout that we can uh, provide access to to groups and expression and making that safe to reduce some of the stress they've been through over the last six months. Dr. Dickerson, tell us a little bit more about how people can reach you, what you have planned for the coming year, if people can get access to to your groups and, and working with you or this type of work, Jim. Well, you can enroll at college at Sacramento State. No, that's, that's where my main work is. I work there full time at Sacramento State in their counseling center. I, but like I said before, I also do a little bit of private practice work. And so if anyone was interested Interested in getting in touch with me, they're able to reach me at michael.dickerson.sid 
at gmail.com. Well, we're really grateful for you on behalf of uh, CPA for modeling the different kinds of work that men can do in the field and the ways in which we can help men as clients and help them both as individuals and in a group setting to get the experience of becoming more vulnerable and more open and to knock down some of those walls and to see the positive aspects of overcoming defensiveness and to experience the true healing that that can happen, like you mentioned in Brene Brown's work, what happens when you can be vulnerable? What happens when you allow yourself to feel, receive that support, that strength, that unconditional care from men who have been through men's experiences, similar experiences to you, and that eliminates a lot of the feeling of isolation, which can be real trigger for depression and substance abuse. So we're grateful for you being on the front lines, Dr. Dickerson, especially on a college campus right now where people are really, you know, at risk. They're very vulnerable and very stressed. And men are a huge population in this nation and in the world, obviously. And so, like, let's look for the largest population to really treat. Well, I look forward certainly to seeing you at the next uh, time we can have a conference in person. Who'd have thought that in-face conferences and learning would be, you know, valued. But now we really miss that opportunity to connect in that way. And I certainly hope there's uh, an opportunity down the road to get to bring some of this work even to our own organization. Yeah, likewise. I mean, hopefully yeah, one day we can actually meet in person and hopefully it won't be too far from now. That's right. Well, thank you, Dr. Dickerson. That was a fabulous interview and I hope all of you kept you on the seat of your pants. Thank you all for tuning in. I appreciate it. Please, if you can, check out my Patreon page.com, patreon.com slash Richard Listens or Instagram, Richard Listens. Uh, you get the theme. We appreciate all your support and interest. We're now up on iTunes, Spotify. If you're interested in therapy, teletherapy, any kind of consultation, please don't hesitate to reach out to me through my website, richardlistens.com. I'm happy to help and support in any way through any kind of strain, support, or isolation you are going through. We are here to alleviate strain and suffering. Thank you all for tuning in. I'm Richard Listens, and I'm out. I'm a big fan of MMA sports. It's rough and elegant at the same time. I think my number one fear of stepping into a ring like that would be protecting my teeth. Luckily, the guys over at Impact Dental Designs have created an amazing mouth guard that is state of the art. These mouth guards are currently being used by some of the best MMA fighters, but even better, they can be tailored to any sport. Football, hockey, boxing, soccer, the list is endless. Head over to impactdentaldesigns.com slash richardlistens to get 20% off your order and a free customized design for your mouth guard. Lastly, I'd like to proudly mention our sponsor, Injitsu.com, providing remote at-home training from some of the world's top MMA fighters. These classes are not pre-recorded. These trainers come to you live and coach you for the duration of the session. I've personally taken a few of these classes and I've never felt so inspired and accomplished in a workout session. They'll leave you both on the floor in exhaustion and with a drenched shirt. There are still slots available for online classes, so head over to injitsu.com slash richardlistens to get your first class free. That's I-N-J-I-T-S-U dot com slash richardlistens. Take care, everyone.